Hey everyone, Dr. Bernard here. In this episode, I'm going to tell you about a student who ate five-day-old pasta and why his liver quickly shut down. After that, I'm going to go in depth on why it happened. Because this is the audio-only version, I'm going to do my best to be as descriptive as possible, but if you need the visuals, the video versions of this case and this episode are in the show notes, as are all references to related cases and subject matter. A student ate five-day-old pasta for lunch. This is how his liver shut down. AJ is a 20-year-old man presenting to the emergency room with abdominal pain, nausea, and diffuse bleeding. Paramedics were scrambling because he kept vomiting in the ambulance until he fell unconscious. AJ was a struggling college student. Like most other people born in his time, he was looking forward to crushing student loan debt that would wipe away his entire adult life. The most affordable food for him was cheap pasta cooked with pre-made sauce. AJ would make all his food for the week on Sunday. He'd refrigerate it into containers, and this way he could ration it by day. But sometimes he'd accidentally leave his food out overnight and then eat it the following morning. His friends loved to joke that one day, AJ would probably die of food poisoning. Except this time, it wasn't really a joke. Earlier in the week, AJ accidentally left his pasta out for two days. He typically would have thrown that away, but his roommate didn't know. He thought it may have just been out for a few hours, so he put it back into the fridge. As AJ reheated the now five-day-old pasta that was left out for two days, he thought it smelled kind of strange, but he used a different brand of sauce this time, so he didn't think too much of it. Immediately after finishing the entire plate of pasta, AJ's stomach started to hurt. He was bloating. He could feel gas build up in his stomach, and the flatulence was so embarrassing, he had to go outside to air out his pants. A stinging pierced through his cheeks, and he could feel his eyes push out of his skull as he suddenly vomited in a way like never before. That pasta must have been no good, he thought. But it's probably just a little food poisoning, he thought. Back in his dorm room now, AJ, in a world of hurt, joked to his roommate Bradley that more than just pasta had exited his body from both ends. Hoping that he'd feel better, he went to bed, but before that, he made sure to drink an entire bottle of stomach medicine in the hopes that it would do something for the nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. But it wasn't enough. 3 a.m., AJ, laying in a pool of cold sweat, runs to the bathroom to huddle over the sink for a couple more hours. As his roommate goes into the bathroom, he sees AJ passed out on the floor, his skin and the whites of his eyes a sickly greenish yellow. AJ gets up and weakly stumbles around before falling down again. Bradley calls for 911 and AJ's brought to the emergency room where we are now. Given this history of present illness, it's clear that AJ is suffering from some kind of food poisoning that's causing liver failure, but to the medical team, that's not immediately obvious. AJ is an otherwise healthy 20-year-old man who wasn't taking any medicines. Given that he's coming from a college dorm, and that he's vomiting and then became unconscious, then that kind of sounds like an alcohol poisoning case. The yellowing of his skin and eyes is called jaundice, and it comes from a chemical called bilirubin, something that makes poop brown and is produced from breaking down red blood cells in the liver. If bilirubin is floating around in the blood, making the skin yellow, then it means that the liver is probably damaged, which brings us back to the suspicion of alcohol poisoning as that can damage the liver. Similarly, another cause of liver damage and unconsciousness in a healthy college-age person could be a drug overdose of which even the roommate may not be aware of. 
except a blood test finds no evidence of alcohol or drug use. Instead, it's found that AJ has hypoglycemia. Hypo, meaning low. Glyce from ancient Greek glikis, meaning sweet, referring to sugar, and emia, meaning presence in blood. Low sugar presence in blood. AJ ate his last meal of spoiled pasta about 16 hours ago. Blood sugar levels spike after eating and level off about four hours after, wherein the human body continuously works to maintain normal glycemia. But for AJ, that mechanism isn't functioning, meaning something that's supposed to be releasing that sugar isn't releasing it. Hypoglycemia by itself is a relatively non-specific problem, and it means that you could have several different problems that could be causing it. But given that the liver is the most immediate source of stored sugar, then this developing hypoglycemia could give us a biochemical basis for explaining his fulminant liver failure. You see, the liver is a highly metabolic organ. You can't live for very long without one. Everything that enters your mouth ends up in the liver as it breaks down chemicals and red blood cells, secretes bile for digestion, makes blood clotting factors that stop you from bleeding, and processes proteins among other functions. And it maintains blood sugar levels, bringing us back to metabolism. Sugar, or glucose, is the cell's primary source of energy, and the liver, to perform all of these functions, commands a high demand of cellular energy. Given that glucose is no longer being released from the liver into the blood, then it indicates that there's likely a metabolic problem developing inside AJ's liver. And because fatty acids are oxidized into glucose, which then results into ATP production, ATP being the major energy molecule of cells, then it means that there's likely fatty deposits growing inside, stopping all essential liver functions. We can assume here that AJ's food poisoning from rotten pasta is likely from some kind of bacterial or maybe fungal source, but something's wrong. Typically, food poisoning just causes stomach inflammation, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. It doesn't typically cause acute liver failure, and even worse, we can't find out which bacteria is causing the problem because culturing it would take days, days that AJ doesn't have because his liver is quickly shutting down. His response to broad-spectrum antibiotics is limited. Additional blood tests find multiple liver enzymes floating around in his blood at a level 500 times the upper limit of normal, meaning parts of his liver have started to die and are now circulating all throughout his body. His kidneys are starting to fail because analysis of his urine finds blood in it. In liver failure, especially with the presence of bacteria, the body signals to the immune system that something is wrong. White blood cells and inflammatory markers rush to the site and vasodilate the splanchnic arteries. From ancient Greek, splanchnikos, meaning entrails. Because about 30% of systemic blood is in the splanchnic circulation, this volume expansion decreases the effective blood volume. The heart detects this thinking that the body's lost a lot of blood and it secretes hormones to tell the body to hold on to water and sodium and to constrict all other blood vessels, including the ones going into the kidneys, preventing blood flow into them, causing acute renal injury in conjunction to fulminant hepatic failure. If there's no available liver for transplantation within the next day, AJ has minimal odds of survival.
The idea of liver failure arising from toxic compounds ingested orally was not understood until recent times. In 1778, the Aki tree was transported to Jamaica from Western Africa by the British. In 1875, unripened Aki fruit was consumed by people, followed by a record of vomiting, hypoglycemia, hyperammonemia, elevated liver enzymes in blood, and fat buildup in the liver. This was named Jamaican vomiting sickness, and it was found 100 years later in 1976 that hypoglycin A is the chemical that inhibits liver mitochondrial activity, leading to fatty acid buildup, hypoglycemia, hyperammonemia, resulting in liver failure. A famous description of aspirin overdose in children in the 1960s was published and named Rise Syndrome. It was noted that children who received aspirin for fever reduction from the flu had a syndrome of hypoglycemia, hyperammonemia, elevated liver enzymes, and metabolic acidosis, symptoms that looked very similar to those who suffered from Jamaican vomiting sickness. We know today that excess aspirin uncouples the electron transport chain in the mitochondria during ATP synthesis, leading to fat buildup and liver failure. Today, any aspirin prescribed for a child is considered a mistake and at medication dispensing will almost always be substituted for a different drug. For AJ, no liver was available in time for transplant and autopsy opened the opportunity for further investigation. Liver histologies revealed diffuse microvesicular steatosis, that is, small vesicles of fat that had accumulated inside his liver. The cellular necrosis, that is, dead cells, suggested that mitochondrial toxins were at play, meaning that bacteria may not have been the only problem with his spoiled pasta. Post-mortem laboratory experiments and bacterial cultures were developed. Samples of AJ's vomit were collected while he was admitted, in addition to his bile and the pasta that he ate. The bacteria Bacillus cereus was identified as the causative agent. It's a well-known foodborne pathogen that typically causes gastritis, and by itself, the food poisoning that results from it is usually self-limiting, meaning that one can recover from it through intrinsic bodily function. But for AJ, a second agent was found. Additional lab methods were used to detect, extract, isolate, and purify the toxin from Bacillus cereus cultures, revealing a protein known as cereulide, which points us to the final answer of AJ's case. Certain strains of Bacillus cereus produce cereulide in its microenvironment. This protein is an ionophore, meaning it has an affinity for one specific electronically charged ion, namely potassium. For bacteria, excess potassium is beneficial in its survival locally, but in humans, this is highly toxic. Cereulide easily diffuses through cell membranes. Inside, they embed onto the surface of the mitochondria. Human intracellular fluid is potassium-rich, meaning it gives this toxin sufficient resources to perform its ionophoresis, incessantly pumping potassium into the mitochondria. This eventually overloads the ability of the mitochondria to perform oxidation required to produce ATP for energy, therefore preventing the use of glucose and fats. The gradual swelling of the mitochondria 
mitochondria causes it to burst, killing the cell, and on a macroscopic scale, allows fat to pool in the liver, causing the entire organ to fail, leading to regional inflammation, splanchnic vasodilation, leading to the heart to release hormones for the body to hold on to water, and to constrict the blood vessels of the kidney, causing kidney failure, and releasing ammonia and glutamate that leads to swelling of the brain, ending in death. All because AJ unknowingly ate pasta that was left out unrefrigerated for two days. The final link in this case comes not from the pasta, but that stomach medicine that AJ drank after initially vomiting. Bismuth subsalicylate is a salicylate, or more colloquially known as aspirin. Aspirin overdoses, just like in Rye syndrome, also result in liver failure because aspirin uncouples the electron transport chain in mitochondria, preventing the conversion of glucose into ATP, causing backup of glucose in the pooling of fats in liver tissue. So adding this medicine overdose to cerulite poisoning resulted in a dual blockade of ATP synthesis and leading to acute liver failure. It's important to note that this is not a typical food poisoning case. Many people eat pasta or any other kind of noodle that is left over for a day or two and they're fine. But tragic cases such as this one have been reported in literature and the fulminant hepatic failure is sudden with a patient expiration happening within hours after presenting to the emergency room. Some particularly tragic published cases are from families who go out on a picnic with their children only to have multiple small kids under 10 years of age suffer from sudden liver failure due to spoiled pasta. And the end of those stories are the same as in AJ's case. Be careful of food left out for more than a few hours. If the food smells funny, it's always better to be safe than sorry. And for cases like cerulite poisoning, sometimes there isn't much time left after initially eating the spoiled food, just like for AJ. Coming up after this short break, I'll get into more detail on what exactly happened to AJ. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. AJ, the student, was like a lot of American people his age who went to college in his time, accepted a large loan to pay for higher education, that depending on career choice, where they land, who they met along the way, and elements of luck and hard work, could serve the main purpose of upward socioeconomic mobility based on scholastic merit. But after the 1990s, served as a mechanism to indebt someone for maybe their entire life. The associations with this machinery might be something completely unknown to people hundreds of years down the line, but what we do know is that pasta is cheap. One can save money on food. That's a heavy driving factor for college students, and some people like to prepare all of their meals for the week in advance so that they don't have to think about it. The patient's practices led to his friend to joke that one day he would die of food poisoning, except this time it wasn't going to be a joke. When I started to describe the liver failure, you'll notice that I started with hypoglycemia. That tells you a little, probably not a lot. It's a nonspecific description and by itself, it's not enough to know that someone has acute hepatic failure. I spent maybe a whole week writing that part 
and the entire video version of that case couldn't proceed until I rectified it. It really could have gone several different ways, but starting with low sugar presence in blood, I found was the quickest way to get to the point that I needed to for general audience. Blood sugar as an idea is in common language, and it's easier to grasp by a majority of people than encephalopathy, the word itself being intimidating, and the idea of international normalized ratio. There's an overhead associated with going that route that'll make the video longer. What's INR? What's prothrombin time? What's hepatic encephalopathy? Why does it happen? How does it happen? How about liver enzymes? What's an enzyme? Those are all part of the overhead. It's all technical. So in context of liver failure, in the very beginning of the case, I tell you some really big details. AJ is a 20-year-old man presenting to the emergency room with abdominal pain, nausea, and diffuse bleeding. Paramedics were scrambling because he kept vomiting in the ambulance until he fell unconscious. Abdominal pain with extreme nausea and vomiting, something abdominal. Falling unconscious, something neurological. Diffuse bleeding. He didn't get a cut somewhere, it's diffuse, so he's bleeding in many different places. Why would he be bleeding like that? This is someone who also has jaundice. First two sentences of the video tells you a lot. This isn't a borderline case, it's an extreme one. Neuro exam, unconscious, unarousable, unresponsive to pain, diffuse bleeding, so something systemic, something's wrong, airway is fine, breathing is okay, circulation okay, heart rate and rhythm normal. In that first sentence, I also tell you that he's a 20-year-old man who's described as a student in the title. 20's too old to be in high school, so this is someone at the university undergraduate level. What can you tell me about health problems in a 20-year-old man? 20's pretty young to have chronic diseases that are common in people over 65 years old. If we're looking at heart attacks, a 20-year-old having a heart attack is likely going to have one for a different reason than a 70-year-old. Liver damage usually takes a long time to happen, so liver failure happening between the two age groups are likely going to be for different reasons too. And this is acute liver failure. High AST, ALT in the blood, neurologic signs and symptoms, jaundice, hypoglycemia, no known prior liver disease. So what would be a cause of liver failure in a previously healthy 20-year-old man? So I could go into all the different things like autoimmune hepatitis or ischemic hepatopathy or scorpion sting right in the middle of winter outside of Baltimore. There's no scorpions there and not in the wintertime. Everything put together, this is very likely something happening due to this person ingesting and putting something in their body. What are some things that a 20-year-old might ingest? Heart rate and rhythm are normal, so it doesn't look like they're stimulant use. He's breathing normally, so probably not opioids because that would be respiratory depression. So what else would you think of? Did he drink something? Maybe. That could be likely given age and social demographic being in the college setting. If it was to the point of causing acute liver failure, you might be able to smell it off of his breath if it happened recently enough. But in this case, we know that he didn't drink any liquor. Did he eat something? Now we're talking. One thing I find interesting in looking at tweets that come up randomly about this case and its associated ones is that this case is often met with a lot of fear. It's something that's taught in medical, pharmacy, and nursing schools. Because of its nature, students tend to remember that reheating pasta and rice is dangerous. Unfortunate that that ends up being the takeaway because that's not what the case is about. Very generally, reheating pasta and rice after a day or two or three and it's been refrigerated the whole time within a couple hours after it was made, that's not going to cause any problems. 
I'm speaking personally here. Even if it did cause problems, I have a harder time throwing away meat and proteins, which where I live are way more expensive. Throwing away some rice or some pasta is not too big a deal for me, at least at this point in time. So with that, how would sketchy five-day-old pasta that was left out for at least a whole day cause liver failure so severe that the person eating it will die from it? Do you remember this line? You see, the liver is a highly metabolic organ. You can't live for very long without one. Everything that enters your mouth ends up in the liver as it breaks down chemicals and red blood cells, secretes bile for digestion, makes blood clotting factors that stop you from bleeding, and processes proteins among other functions. And it maintains blood sugar levels, bringing us back to metabolism. When you think of something being metabolically active, you think of metabolism, of heat, of movement, the breaking and creation of chemical bonds involving a lot of energy being produced and consumed. An energy factory could be called a powerhouse. And because we know that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, now we're talking. A sample of the patient's liver revealed microvesicular steatosis. Micro meaning small, vesicle referring to a sac or a vacuole, a little space, and steat, referring to fats or lipids, and osis meaning a disorder of, a disorder of fat contained in small sacs. This is different from macrovesicular steatosis, where the sacs are big, and they're so big that the nucleus of the cell gets pushed off to the side. You can see that underneath a microscope. Macrovesicular steatosis is common, and it's associated with alcohol misuse, diabetes, and obesity. Microvesicular is not as common. So we're talking about the liver. The liver needs a lot of energy to function. This patient had liver failure. Cells use fats as an energy source, but in these samples, we see an inappropriate presence of fat in the liver. From this information, we can take one guess that fats entered the liver cells like how they normally do, but something happened so that those cells couldn't process and handle the fats, causing them to quickly build up. Without being able to produce energy from fats, some machinery in the cell was disturbed and couldn't make up for this loss, resulting in the big picture result of the liver shutting down. In the extreme case that 100% of the liver no longer functions, wastes in the blood that are normally processed by the liver accumulate quickly. Among them is ammonia from gut bacteria processing proteins and this causes disturbances in cerebral osmolites. This results in more water entering the brain than is normal, causing cerebral edema, intracranial hypertension, herniation, and then it's over. So what was that something that happened so that the cells couldn't process and handle the fats? Well, it was bacteria that grew on the five-day-old pasta, but it was Bacillus cereus, which is commonly found in soil and doesn't usually cause severe kind of illness. So, it's more than just bacteria. Some strains, one in particular, can produce a toxin that specifically targets the mitochondria, preventing the mitochondria from using fats to create energy, causing the buildup, and causing the acute liver failure. In the mitochondria, we have ATP production, a majority of it being the product of the electron transport chain, where protons re-enter the matrix by traveling through a pore in ATP synthase, and the energy released in that process is used to make ATP. For reference, the matrix is the innermost part of the mitochondria. 
the intermembrane space is inside the mitochondria, but outside the matrix. So the matrix is totally contained within the mitochondria. Going upstream the process of the electron transport chain, if ATP production ends with protons re-entering the matrix because a gradient was created, then something must have caused those protons to be pushed out of the matrix and into the intermembrane space. If protons were moved, and those are positive charges, then we could make a guess that electrons, which are negative charges, were involved. And we know in the process of ATP production, there is the electron transport chain. Four complexes, big proteins, starting with nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide, NADH, the reduced form, and it gets oxidized to NAD+. So two electrons are removed, and transferred to a compound called ubiquinone. The quinone moiety is a conjugated cyclic dione, so there's two double bond O's in a structure with delocalized electrons. Gaining two electrons means that the charge becomes negative, so to neutralize it, two protons are accepted, and ubiquinone becomes ubiquinol, and then it diffuses across the membrane. In the United States, you see TV commercials everywhere for CoQ10 supplement, that's ubiquinol. As this conversion happens, the electron current passing through complex 1 powers the active transport, so remember it's creating a gradient of four protons into the intermembrane space. But where does the NADH that's used in this process come from? Going upstream of this, we have the tricarboxylic acid cycle, TCA cycle, that reduces NAD to NADH, so the reverse of what's happening in the electron transport chain, specifically at complex 1. This is all the stuff that you learned in school multiple times, and depending on where you end up, may or may not have applied to you. You had to memorize it multiple times for a test without any context of why, but really all of those times you learned it were for situations like right now, where it absolutely applies here, and it's good that you happen to know about it even though you may not remember all of it from school. So to enter the TCA cycle, you need acetyl-CoA, but where does acetyl-CoA come from? There's one pathway where it comes from glucose, there's another pathway where it comes from fats, and remember, we know that there's a dysfunction of creating ATP and the pathological findings show an inappropriate accumulation of fats in the form of microvesicular steatosis. So this brings us to how the toxin from the bacteria in five-day-old pasta caused fulminant hepatic failure. To get acetyl-CoA from fatty acids, the pathway is going to appear boring, but there's important steps in between that entire diseases are based off of. Triglycerides and fatty acids get converted to acyl-CoA by acyl-CoA synthetase. Acyl is a general term describing a carbonyl and an alkyl group, so the number of carbons is not specific. It could be a couple carbons, it could be a lot. In any given sample, you're going to have a wide variety of different quantities. Really long fatty acids, which have a lot of carbons, can't cross the mitochondrial membrane on its own, but there's a shuttle for it mediated by carnitine. Diseases can happen here if there's something wrong with the carnitine transporter, a problem with the carnitine palmitoyl transferase enzyme that places the carnitine on the fatty acid out or inside the mitochondria. These are diseases of metabolism, so you can expect highly metabolic tissue like the liver, heart, and brain to be affected in patients who have it. Carnitine is bound to the fatty acid and then shuttled into the mitochondria where the carnitine is then taken off and acyl-CoA is reformed again 
and this is where it's converted to acetyl-CoA through beta-oxidation completing our cycle. But if we're looking at a problem where fat is building up into vesicles, and we're assuming that the person didn't have any deficiencies upstream of this cycle at this point, then it's here where the problems form, and this is called fatty acid beta-oxidation. Beta referring to the second carbon of the carbonyl group, or carbon number three if you're counting carbons starting from the carbonyl. The beta-oxidation process happens in four steps, where the first step involves three different isozymes. If the fatty acid is at least 12 carbons in length, then the second, third, and fourth steps happen in a large complex that has three enzymes and is called the mitochondrial trifunctional protein on the inner mitochondrial membrane. If the fatty acid is less than 12 carbons in length, then the final three steps happen not in the complex, but inside the mitochondrial matrix. The reason why it's important is because in that first step, there's three isozymes. Very long chain acyl-CoA dehydrogenase, medium chain acyl-CoA dehydrogenase, and short chain acyl-CoA dehydrogenase. You can be born with deficiencies of these enzymes, and it's not that uncommon. Medium chain acyl-CoA dehydrogenase deficiency has a prevalence of 1 in 20,000 live births. So, what happens if someone has a deficiency for medium chain? They would have primary inhibition of fatty acid beta oxidation. What does that look like? Let's say it's a kid, and he's a really picky eater. Mom's not having any of it. She says, you know what? If you don't want to eat this dinner, I'm not cooking anything extra for you, and I'm not going to buy you McDonald's chicken nuggets. Guess you're just going to have to wait until morning to eat. So the kid's liver will start tapping glycogen stores to provide glucose to make acetyl-CoA to feed into the cell machinery to produce ATP. But as the hours pass, those sugar stores are getting more and more depleted, and it's harder to get a quick source. Acetyl-CoA provides the acetyl group for ketones and those can be used for energy, but acetyl-CoA is the precursor. The medium chain acyl-CoA dehydrogenase deficiency is putting a hard limit on acetyl-CoA production that limits ATP production, causing metabolic acidosis. Hypoglycemia is happening because the kid hasn't eaten, but also can't use his fat stores to create energy. Because of this inhibition of fatty acid oxidation, cytoplasmic fatty acids are converted to triglycerides, which accumulate and produces microvesicular steatosis in the liver, bringing us back to the student who ate five-day-old pasta. The toxin made by that strain of bacteria is called cereuli. Again, uncommon strain that develops from not great conditions on rice and pasta. Cereulide, from what we understand, is a potassium ionophore. It's a cyclic peptide that binds to the mitochondrial inner membrane and allows potassium to flow freely into the matrix. Remember, potassium is the predominant intracellular cation. On the mitochondrial inner membrane, there's a hydrogen-potassium exchanger that is to pump potassium out of the matrix and bring hydrogen into the matrix. But there's two problems with that. As an ionophore, the amount of potassium let in would overwhelm this exchanger. And not only that, remember the electron transport chain happens here. The electron transport chain pumps hydrogen out so that it can flow through a pore in ATP synthase to make ATP. So importing hydrogen into the matrix because you need to get rid of excess potassium would mean that you're disturbing the gradient that's being created by the electron transport chain. The introduction of more potassium than normal into the matrix starts to raise the pH of the matrix because protons are getting pumped out while potassium flows in. Remember, the electron transport chain happens because of proteins, which are adapted to certain pH. 
if this changes, then you can guess that the complex's ability to function would change because proteins can change in different pH. And there's also some evidence that ubiquinone would also stabilize, which would then not move electrons, impairing ATP synthesis. As more and more potassium floods into the hepatocyte mitochondria, oxidative phosphorylation becomes uncoupled. Reactive oxidative species form because oxygen is supposed to be the final electron acceptor, but it can't do that anymore. The mitochondria swell up and rupture, causing hepatocellular necrosis. Extensive necrosis results in functional liver failure. Before the cell lyses, blebs form in the cell membrane, and enzymes start leaking out. As the blebs coalesce, the cell dies and leaks out all of the contents. As the liver fails, it doesn't produce the right amount of blood clotting factors which can result in diffuse bleeding. The liver doesn't process the ammonia that's produced by gut bacteria breaking down proteins. As the ammonia flows into the liver from the portal circulation, it's supposed to be detoxified to glutamine and urea by the urease cycle, which also happens to be another branch of the acetyl-CoA breakdown, but the liver is failing, and the processes are all overloaded and normal function isn't attained. Ammonia spills into the blood and flows to the brain where glutamine synthetase in the astrocytes convert ammonia with glutamate into glutamine, which is a cerebral osmolite causing cerebral edema. And without a liver transplant in time, nothing can be done enough and in time to prevent what will happen because at autopsy, Bacteria from this patient's intestinal contents, his liver, and also residue from the pan used to reheat his pasta were cultured and it was found to be Bacillus cereus. The final note that I want to discuss was that I added in that the patient drank a whole bottle of Pepto-Bismol to the case because I wanted to teach briefly about salicylates. Pepto-Bismol is bismuth subsalicylate, being an uncoupler of oxidative phosphorylation in the setting of overdose like drinking an entire bottle and this does profoundly impact ATP production. It appears that salicylates can lead to microvesicular steatosis because it can consume CoA, which would then mean that acetyl-CoA would have trouble being produced. So there would be a decreased fatty acid activation from low CoA levels, leading to decreased beta oxidation. I wanted to add in this bit about Rye syndrome. In the original description, it was talking about children and using aspirin, usually to control fevers. It turns out decades later that most of those patients had problems with fatty acid metabolism rather than the aspirin causing it. I didn't describe that mechanism very well in the Chubby Emu video, so I wanted to clarify that here. Adding in that dual blockade, in my mind, there would be no question that the liver failure was complete from a dual block of the same pathway. Unfortunately, in the original Chubby Emu video, I could see many comments that couldn't deal with that. They would go so far as to say that it was only the bottle of Pepto-Bismol that caused that liver failure, that the pasta meant absolutely nothing. But that reveals to me that those people commenting entirely missed everything about cereulide, about how a massive intramitochondrial shift of potassium from a cyclic peptide acting as an ionophore causes mitochondrial dysfunction. It didn't help that news articles covering the story at the time just said that it was food poisoning without explaining that a special strain of a common bacteria produced a toxin that made this food poisoning so much worse than normal. It taught me a lesson that two ideas at the same time that are interwoven and related sometimes won't get processed. My videos since 2019 when I published this case have reflected that lesson learned, but the reality is in medicine, there's a lot of ifs and there's a lot of unknowns that are time sensitive 
at that particular point in time. The big bucks are made because things more often than not are borderline, and you have to make a decision on which way to go based on what you know at that point in time. Not very many things are so obviously unipolar and in just one dimension, but that's an aside. This was a quick review of microvesicular steatosis and fulminant hepatic failure that occurred because of someone who ate five-day-old pasta by accident. Thanks so much for listening. Take care of yourself and be well.